Well, tonight we are we're finishing our series, The Untamed God. It's been a study of the ways that God is really different from us and why that's really good news, that He is that way. And, and we've talked about the infinite God, the self-sufficient God, the sovereign God, and, and tonight we're talking about the incarnate God. And, and of the many things that we tend to tame, um, Christmas is toward the top of the list. Y'all, y'all want lights on tonight? I was going to test it out differently and just see if we wanted to do it like that. But hey, you, 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 can't, you can't halfway commit on the lights, so we're, we're going all the way now. At this point, uh, you just got to go with it. Um, we, we tend to tame Christmas, Right, and, and not just because it gets dressed up with tinsel and you know, maybe you get Christmas PJs or something fuzzy uh, like that. Um, it, it shows up even in, in some of the, the carols that we sing, um, which, by the way, I, you know, I think every time that the song Christmas Shoes uh, plays on the radio, an angel is, is choking on its own feathers. Um, there's just certain things that are that are too bad to be <laughs> played, um, but but even the ones you know we, we we have these little cute signs that say "Keep Christ in Christmas," and uh, we sing about um, Silent Night, which you know I've been around a woman giving birth. Silent is probably not the way that I I would describe that experience. Uh, or away in a manger, you know the little Lord Jesus. No crying he makes. You know, he just doesn't make a, a single sound. It's like, why do, why do we find the need to, to have to present uh, Jesus and the events surrounding uh, Christmas in, in that way? But, but the reality is the whole fact of Christmas has become so ordinary. It's, it's almost expected. It's become so familiar to us. But this is how the Apostle Paul describes it. First Timothy 3, verse 16, I don't think I'll put that there. He says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. He says, great mystery. This is something that is stunning. This is something that ought to floor us in amazement that God has actually done this. What was accomplished by what we call Christmas is the most category-shattering, life-transforming, future-shaping news that you will ever encounter. And, and I say that without any exaggeration. It, it's challenging to, to collect together words that, that don't just become noise for us. You can piece together adjectives and adverbs, but it doesn't mean that we see it in the way that God has intended. But is this something that has become tame for you? It, it doesn't really hold your attention any longer. There's a pastor named Mike Bullmore, and he tells a story about a man who was visiting the Louvre uh, Museum where the Mona Lisa is and other famous paintings. And uh, he, he was kind of looking around at him and, and said, you know, I, I just don't get it. I don't get what the big deal is. And uh, one of the attendants at the museum said, Sir, the paintings in here are no longer being evaluated. The viewers are. In other words, if, if you're saying, I just don't get it, I don't get what the big deal is, you're not making a statement about that work of art. You are betraying your own ignorance in a moment like that. Right? There, there is a, a maturity that lends to an ability to see things for the value that they really are. I mean, you experience that in a, in a variety of ways in life. Your taste buds mature. Uh, last night, I was eating some uh, feta cheese and caramelized onion pastry that I would have never eaten for the first, I don't know, 13 years of my life. Uh, you could not have gotten me to try that, right? But, but eventually flavors, you know, your taste buds mature and, they, and you, you desire things that are a little more complex and you see why there's something that's, that's good in that and, and, and layers of flavors that are there. And my, honestly, my, my daughter, you know, she's, she's going to be five tomorrow. Uh, she's got much more mature taste buds even than I have right now in uh, what she's uh, willing to eat and what she's attracted to. She's always loving to eat like olives and hummus and uh, strange flavors like that. But uh, but but th- there's a problem when we when we encounter things that 
truly are tasteful and great and ought to have our attention locked onto them, we so quickly settle for other things to distract us. I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past us to show up at the Grand Canyon and be fine with just watching Netflix in our hotel room. <laughs> it's, it's funny to watch this happen in different situations. You know, the, uh, the NFL has sought to shorten games and, and, and change the way that penalties function in order to, to keep the action moving uh, because they just recognize people, people aren't viewing it like they used to. They're not, their attention's not being held uh, through the entire event, right? Because we're, we're, just, we're just trained for quick and easy things. And, and even, even something like Disney World hasn't gotten past this. Uh, Pete, you know, he's the expert in all things Disney, and he was telling me how they, he watches families and they'll spend a fortune to travel there, and, and they'll get reservations at some of the nicest restaurants that are at Disney, and they've got all their little kids decked out in the bippity-boppity-boo dress-up stuff, and, and, and yet everybody's on their phones. It's like even at Disney, you're still held by some little device for the temporary flash of something that's going to come over your news feed. But listen, if, if this is how we react to Christmas, if it no longer holds our attention, the problem is with us. We're the ones being evaluated by that. Paul David Tripp puts it like this, sadly, many of us aren't gripped by the stunningly magnificent events and truths of the birth of Jesus anymore. Sadly, Many of us are no longer gripped by wonder as we consider what this story tells us about the character and plan of God. Sadly, many of us are no longer humbled by what the incarnation of Jesus tells us about ourselves. We walk by the garden of the incarnation, but we don't see the roses of grace anymore. Our eyes have gone lazy and our hearts have grown cold. Well, tonight we're going we're gonna to talk about the fact that the untamed God, the one that we have been studying, the one who is so high and, and appropriately distant from us in our experience, how he has drawn near to us in Jesus. He has come as close as he possibly could. That's just something that is breathtaking and compelling when you are face to face with what is unlike you, with what is potentially dangerous. You know, we, we, we love to see exotic animals and, and go to zoos and uh, visit places where you can see some kind of rare creature that un, under any other circumstance would kill you in a moment, but they're kind of behind glass, but take the glass away, you better not blink. <laughs> And you think of the Lord like this, you know, I've, I've used this, this picture of the lion throughout this series, and it's borrowed a little bit, although I haven't, I've, I've resisted quoting from it, I've made it this far, but at this point I can do it, right? Uh, anybody, anybody know, what, what am I thinking of when I, when I pull the lion in, and what specifically is Lucy told in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about Aslan? Yeah, he's not safe. But he's good. He's a lion. He's not a tame lion, right? He's a wild lion, but he is good. And you have that image, and then you have so many times in the storyline where Lucy is embracing this untame but perfectly good lion. And that's what we get in Jesus. There are these two words that, that I put in your notes there, transcendent and imminent, and, and those are good vocabulary words to just add to your thinking. Transcendent has to do with outside of creation, beyond us, high and lifted up, ruling over everything at a distance from us when it comes to our capabilities and our experience. And imminence has to do with being close at hand intimate, face-to-face. -face. You can feel the warmth of that lion's breath right across your face. That's what that word means. And, and God has not kept a safe distance. He has come so 
near to us. And this is something that Christianity uniquely gets right, I'll say. Christianity is the, is the only religion that has a God who is both transcendent and imminent. Uh, Islam's got a God who's transcendent. He's kind of above the fray. He kind of does whatever he wants. So he's sovereign in that sense, but you, you kind of aren't really sure what he's going to do next because he, he doesn't really have to answer to his justice or to his character, and so he's a little arbitrary there. But he's exalted, right? Allahu Akbar, he's God who is great above all. But the, the notion that God could enter into his world or enter into his creation, that is the greatest stumbling block that any Muslim would ever have to get past in order to become a Christian. But you got, you know, Eastern thought of Hinduism, which, which kind of identifies God and the world, and so they slide all the way in the other direction of, of eminence, and you have the, you know, versions of pantheism where God's kind of in everything, and he's close at hand, and it's hard to distinguish between uh, stuff that's made and God because they're kind of one and the same. But, but Christianity is the only religion that honors God's transcendence and doesn't keep him at a distance in doing so. And this is the way that God has planned it, and we see it perfectly in Christmas. All right, I want to read uh, from John chapter 1, and we'll study from there. So if you'd open up to John chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 18. I want us to hear these words in a fresh and compelling way. John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to the everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him. And cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It doesn't mean just like a few days before me because John the Baptist was born before Jesus. He's reaching all the way to the beginning. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that we can know You. God, thank You for these revealed words Lord, thank you that we are not left to just think the best thoughts that we can come up with and try to arrive at some understanding of you and what you desire for our lives. God, you have come all the way to us and you have shown us yourself. And by your mercy alone, you have entered into relationship with us when we weren't looking for you and we weren't providing any reason for you to do that because of your love, 
you determined to have us. God, would we know you better tonight, Lord, as, as this describes that we get to see your glory in this? God, would we see it with greater clarity? Would it be bigger than we've ever been able to recognize before? And God, would it capture us? And would we respond with affection and worship? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, John begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. And he's reaching back to Genesis chapter one right there, right? Similar words there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and God said, and, and so he's, he's telling us that underneath all of reality, what, what creates everything else that isn't God is the word of God. God's speech is in everything and behind everything. I'll pull in another thought from uh, C.S. Lewis and the, the Chronicles of Narnia. I've mentioned this before that uh, when Eustace and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he, he's interacting with this retired star named Ramandu. And, and he says this, in our world, said Eustace, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. Even in your world, my son, he replied, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Right? And, and there are a lot of people that are able to analyze what stuff is made of. You can find out the, the chemical properties of paint on a canvas. You can talk about the technology behind the pixels on a screen, but that, that doesn't tell you what that is. That, that doesn't explain artwork to you. You could, you could talk about the sound that's, that's coming from my voice right now and how my microphone is falling off of my ear and how it's being broadcasted through uh, speakers and all those things, but that doesn't tell you what I'm saying. That doesn't account for language, right? You could talk about chemical reactions, that happens in, in the brain when you feel loved and you feel affection and what that does to you and, and how emotions arise in you, but that doesn't tell you what love is. And, and, and I want you to, to, to feel this. There is underneath everything that we can see, there's more than what you can just analyze or put in a test tube or scientifically describe. And if you keep getting underneath it all, under this podium and under this binder and under the, the molecules that are present there, you have God's words. You have God speaking things into existence. And from the very beginning, there was the word of God, the speech of God, and, and, and not just any word, Right, we know this word is a, is a person because he goes on to say, and the word was with God. And that word with means, means face to face. He's, he's facing God the Father. Right? And we, we know this is Jesus because we've cheated and we've read ahead already. And so you know that's who he's talking about here. But, but later on in verse 18, he talks about him being at the Father's side. And so before anything else exists, there's the community of God. There's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Douglas Wilson, using this language here, he talks about the, the speaker and the spoken and the interpreter, and they, for all eternity, have been in fellowship with one another and uh, infinitely happy and full of joy. And right, we studied this when we talked about God's self-sufficiency. And, and, and John begins by reaching back into that eternal reality, the relational fullness that they have had. Uh, Drew Dyke describes it like this. He says, I was captivated by the vision, he's talking about this passage, of Jesus face to face with the Father, dwelling in unbroken communion throughout eternity past, Think of the implications. It means that intimacy preceded creation, that love was burning before the stars were born, and it was out of the overflow of that love that the material world sprang into existence. 
we learn this universe is no accident. It's not the product of blind forces clashing in cold space, nor are we an accident for that matter. No, John told us the story behind the story, and we discover the best news imaginable. In the beginning was love, and that love spilled over so that you and I arrive on the scene. And so he says in in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And he's talking about the word. He's talking about Jesus there. And he says, Jesus is the creator of everything. And, and, and nothing exists apart from him. Nothing exists apart from his permission, apart from his will. Right? There's nothing that confronts the Son of God. There's nothing in the entire universe that he discovers and says, oh, that's there. I didn't, I didn't realize that about that. That has nothing to do with me. Everything that is in existence, John says, that's the work of Jesus. He did that. He's the one. In fact, if he were not willing us to be, if he were not right now thinking about us, we would cease to exist because he's the one who's holding all reality together. It is an act of his will. All right, let, let us not rush to tame a Jesus like that by the word of his power holding us together and allowing us to continue. And how can you say this about him? Well, then he says, I read over this, but go back in verse 2. And the word was God. And then verse 18, he says, the only God who's at the Father's side. Did you notice that when we read that earlier? He said, no one has seen God. And then just Seemingly out of nowhere, he says, the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. I mean, it, it, it almost sounds ungrammatical. He's saying there's only one God, and no one has seen God, but the only God who's with the Father, who's at his side, who's experienced forever relational intimacy with him, he has shown us exactly what he is like because he mirrors him perfectly. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God. And that is who Jesus is. Uh, One of my favorite um, Christmas Santa Claus traditions is the tradition where you punch a heretic. Um, because there, there are a few things that are, are known about the historical St. Nicholas, and then there's some things that kind of surrounds him that, you know, have been retold through the centuries. And, and this one, you know, we're not entirely sure if it's true, but I really sure hope it, hope it is. Um, and that is when, when, when St. Nicholas came into contact with a, a man named Arius. And Arius was in, uh, he lived in the fourth century. He was an early heretic in, in, among the people of God. And he taught that, um, that Jesus, he was God in, in a way, but he was a created being. There was a point in time when he wasn't. He wasn't always eternally with the Father, and, and so God the Father created Jesus at some point, and so he wasn't really God. And it's said that when uh, St. Nicholas came across areas, he decked him in the jaw. <laughs> uh, and so Santa Claus has been defending Christmas from the very beginning. Um, but he's defending this fact because in the early stages, people have been trying to tame Jesus and make him something less that he is rather than the Lord of glory. And so here's the point I want us to see here. Jesus is fully God, and he does not stop being fully God in the incarnation. You realize that? When we we mean that God became man, we don't mean 
he stopped being God and started to be something else. He added to himself something else, a human nature. And we'll look at that in a moment. But he never stopped being God. And so Jesus has all the attributes of God without measure, the ones we've been studying, right? He, he is infinite, self-sufficient, sovereign, eternal, holy, righteous, wise, omniscient, omnipotent. And, and, if, and if you can fathom this, and I can't, so do your best, omnipresent. And that did not stop being true of him while he walked on this earth. In, in one way, when the Son of God came to, the earth, to earth, he, he never left heaven. This is how John Calvin puts it. This is big stuff right here, but sometimes we, we, <laughs> we need to get exploded out of our boredom when it comes to Christmas. For even if the Word, in his immeasurable essence, united with the nature of man into one person, we do not imagine that he was confined therein. Here's something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, to hang upon the cross. Yet he continually filled the earth even as he had done from the beginning. Right? That, that ought to dislodge your eyes from your phones and get you to think about something else for a moment. Right? The, the, the baby in a manger has a divine nature that, as we learned when we talked about God's infinity, cannot be contained by the entire universe. The universe is too small for him. And that didn't stop being true. He upheld by the word of his power the molecules of the stable in which he was born. And later on, when, when he was crucified, he supplied every breath to the soldiers that were nailing him to the cross. What I said earlier, that you and I don't exist unless every moment Jesus gives the say-so, that was true of the soldiers who were crucifying him. That was true of Herod and Pontius Pilate and everybody that was involved in this kangaroo court and system that condemned him, that those that beat him and, and spit on his face. He was sustaining the cells and the atoms in their body moment by moment moment. And that never stopped when he entered the virgin's womb. Listen, nothing will ever show up in your newsfeed that's more capturing than that. And I'm just praying, God, help me. Help me to see this. Help me to see the glory of this and be amazed. To say that Jesus is God is to mean it in every significance possible. He's not God light. He's not like God on a diet. <laughs> uh, he is God in every sense and deserves all of our worship. And, and yet the fullness of God dwelt bodily. He was truly human, right? He wasn't some sort of pretend man. And so here's how Paul put, uh, not Paul, John puts it like this in, in, in a way that is as, as stark as he could. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word for dwelling, it's the word that's used in the Old Testament for when they would set up the tabernacle, which was to be the, the dwelling place of God. And he's saying that the Son of God came all the way near to us and pitched his tent right among us, and he did so by becoming flesh. Right? Here's how Wilson puts it. We sometimes do not appreciate the magnitude of the problem here. How could the eternal word of the eternal Father take on limits? How could infinitude and finitude marry? 
The doctrine of the incarnation proclaims, frankly and without embarrassment, the most stupendous miracle that can be imagined. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And and John says in verse 9 that the word, he came into the world and he came so close that he became one of us. And this is eminence to the fullest extent. You can't get any closer than than this. And, 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 And again, that illustrates how different God is from us. In becoming one of us, he shows how different he is. Because you and I would have never done this. We would have never stooped this low. We would have never crossed this unfathomable distance. I mean, do you realize that you are a million times closer to a cockroach than you are to God? Anybody want to volunteer to become one? And go and join the colony of cockroaches and die for the other cockroaches? I mean, this becomes so ordinary to us, it it ceases to blow our minds. It ceases to undo us. And bring us to a place where we want to weep before God because of what he's done. God is not like us. I'm so glad that his thoughts are not limited by ours and what we are willing to do. But Jesus shared in our full humanity. He spent nine months in the womb of a peasant girl. He passed through a birth canal. He filled his own diapers. <laughs> he, uh, my kids love that too. I tell them, hey, Jesus pooped, you know. That's about the only time I allow them to use potty jokes because I want them to get this. I want them to, to be stunned by this. He got dirt under his fingernails. He felt that weird tingling sensation when your legs fall asleep, right? There are moments where Jesus was kicking his heel against the ground, trying to get it to wake up because he had sat in some awkward position for too long. He sneezed. He may have snorted water out of his nose when he laughed, for all that uh, we know. His nerve endings and his pain receptors worked just as they were designed, just as he had designed them to operate. And and, and the incarnation is not just that the Son of God zipped up some human body jumpsuit, like he just kind of got inside of a human body and, and, and doesn't have anything else other than that he's got a physical body. He, he, he was made like us in every way that we are except for sin, which means that he had a human soul. He had a human mind, a human intellect, real human emotions, with with, with all that that means. And and listen, emotions are not wrong. They're beautiful. God designed your emotions. The full spectrum of your emotional experience, that sin steps in and twists and causes you to have a distorted perspective in life because of your, quote, emotional reaction in those moments. But human emotion, as God intended to be, Jesus knew it through and through. He had a human will that needed to submit to the divine will. And he prays in the garden, not what I will, but your will be done. He felt happiness and grief, friendship and betrayal, pleasure and pain. He was, he was known as the son of man who came feasting and drinking, and he was known as the man of sorrows. He's walked through everything that we could ever face, and he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus knows our humanity through and through. And I I want you to get this. There is nothing, nothing that we have encountered in this life that is unfamiliar to him. Not just because he's the creator and the one who sets the boundaries for life and the storyteller for all of reality, but because he has written himself himself 
as a character in the storyline and the role that he played for that character and the script that he wrote out had him facing every kind of experience that we could ever confront. He knows what it's like to be you. He lived the teenage years. Right? His parents had to go and find him when he was 12 years old because they lost him somehow. Um, he went to Nazareth High School, or actually he was more likely to be homeschooled, so take your pick on what you want to identify with. Uh, if, if you've lost somebody that you've loved, Jesus wept at Lazarus' grave, and, and people said, oh, how he loved him, because he was a close friend. Jesus knows what that feels like. If you're feeling alone, Jesus was unappreciated by his family. Some of them thought that he was insane. Actually, when I was preparing for this earlier, the, the word brother stood out to me. And maybe that's a reality in, in your family that you have a brother and your relationship with your brother isn't healthy right now and it, it brings confusion and is a, a source of anxiety or concern and how your brother treats you and how you interact with one another and what that brings to the family. Jesus knows exactly what, what that was like. In John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers tried to send him off on some almost suicidal mission. Hey, go down to the feast, Jesus. No, no, nobody who's a prophet does what you do in secret. Why don't you go and show off in front of everybody? And then John adds, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. What's going on in that moment? Either they've got some misguided understanding of what the Messiah wants to do and they want Jesus to jump on it and, and take the reins, or they could care less what's going to happen to them as long as they have some fun. I don't know. But it does say in Mark chapter 3 that his family sought to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. They thought, Jesus knew, you've gone crazy. Right? These are the people that Jesus grew up with. This was his family. He was never married. He was a single man his whole life. He didn't know romantic affection and relationship. This is our Savior, and he was abandoned by his friends in his greatest hour of need. If you're feeling weak, Jesus was sent hungry into a wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Right? There is nothing that you could confront that is foreign to his experience. He knows us inside and out. There's no hiding away in our humanity from him. He's mercifully intruded every aspect of our existence. He has been there and he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He's fully God, truly man, perfectly united in one person in a way that doesn't take away from his humanity or his divinity. Right? If you want to get some big Christmas theology tonight, um, Jesus' humanity doesn't become divine, and his divinity doesn't become human. He has these two natures, and, and they are distinct, but there's only one person who has those two natures, right? And, and, and we, we try to make that easier. We try to relieve the tension and you end up dividing Jesus in half when you do that or you totally destroy who he was and what he's come to do. But, but Jesus had a real human nature that was like ours, that was finite, that was creaturely that was dependent at every moment on God to sustain him. There were things during his earthly life that Jesus' human mind did not know, such as the day or the hour of his return. You ever thought about that passage? Of that day, no one knows, not even the Son, but only the Father. Oh, aren't the Son and the Father both God? 
Absolutely. Does God know? Absolutely. But Jesus is fully God, but not only God. And there's another aspect of who he is. I didn't hear what he said, so I can't react to that. Um, and, and if I could just take you out of your depth for a moment and not let us drown in how deep this is, you realize that for all eternity, there will be things that the human mind of Jesus will not fully comprehend because it's human. I mean, you and I will never know everything that there is to know about God. We'll never reach the end. You, you swim and swim and swim down to the bottomless ocean. You'll never get there. And, and there are aspects of Jesus' own divine nature that his human nature knows truly, but not exhaustively. That's how closely he has identified with us. And he, and he has his humanity forever. I hope you know that. When Jesus rose from the dead, he's not like, I'm done with this. Toss it aside. Um, you will see. There, there is right now a man in heaven, and we will see him. And we will speak to him face to face. Because of the incarnation, our experience in heaven will not only be staring into the brightness of the unimaginable glory of God, but speaking face to face with Jesus like we would talk with a friend. Right? This, is, this is transcendent God made tangible for us. We've got to do something about those bathrooms during Wednesday nights. Uh, this is the beauty of Christmas, right? No one has seen God, but God has let us see him. God has taken us in. God, the one and only who is at the Father's side for all eternity has shown him to us. And, and John also tells us how this is going to be possible. Right? He uses an interesting word here. It's this word flesh. He doesn't just say Jesus became human. He, he, he picks up a word that's, that's grislier than that. Right? Uh, this is not a tame word. Uh, how many of you still have chalkboards in your classes at school, classrooms. Anybody still have, you got, you got chalkboards at Tulane? That's legit, right? Country Day's got chalkboards. Uh, I don't know how many of y'all would identify with the experience of when the teachers, I can't even handle like a little bit of like, just a little bit of the fingernail uh, gliding across accidentally while they're, uh, you get that feeling? It's like just there's some, some reaction. I don't know what it is about that sound. Right, picture with me just full-on hand, fist, nails coming all the way down, sliding down that board. All right? Uh, what you are feeling in this moment, Greek culture and, and John's original readers, that's the reaction that they would have when you talk about the word became flesh. It's like, no, no, it can't be. Why, why would you want that? They, they wanted to get rid of flesh. They wanted to move on to bigger and better and, and, and more spiritual things. But, but it, this is a striking word that John uses here. Here's how Drew Dyke describes it. After dwelling with the Father from before the creation of heaven and earth, the word became flesh the word flesh is a translation of the Greek word sarx. It's not a pretty word. It's gritty and physical. Strong's exhaustive concordance says sarx comes from a word meaning flesh as stripped from the skin. John could have used a gentler word like soma, which refers to the body as a whole. But sarx denotes the realm of meat and blood and bodily functions. It also encompasses the realm of sinfulness and human frailty. Why does he make that point? Because as John the Baptist is going to say later on in verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He took on flesh and blood so that he could be slaughtered like a lamb, so that he could bleed, so that he could be sacrificed for us. Here's how the author of Hebrews describes it. In Hebrews chapter 2, if you still have your Bible open, just flip over to that. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But we see him for a little while 
He was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Then he says in verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, right? There's that word again. He himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Right, that, that's why he took on flesh and blood. So that through death he might forever destroy death, destroy the hold of our sin and our guilt and what it has on us. He shared in our humanity so that it could become a crucified humanity and so that all the condemnation that we would face, Paul says in Romans 8, 3, the reason why we can say there's no more condemnation is because God condemned sin in the flesh. Our sin and his flesh, and that's what takes care of it forever. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And, and, and what, what this imagery shows us you think about this tiny, frail human baby with a heart pumping blood through its veins. That one day, that blood is going to be shed. It's going to be drained. It's going to be beaten until he looks like raw meat. And Christmas is not tame. And it shows us how radically, how desperately we needed to be rescued. Right, as much as I like the story A Christmas Carol, A Christmas Carol is an advertisement of a, of a transformation that doesn't require the incarnation, that doesn't require Jesus to take on flesh that could be torn for us. Right? If at the end of the day, all we needed is you know, some ghost to scare us a little bit in the middle of the night and then turn around and, and decide to be nice to people and give away a, you know, a Christmas goose and have good, goodwill and cheer toward people, uh, we didn't need Jesus to come to just turn our life around and decide we're going to do better. Our condition was so much more desperate than that. And this, this is the humbling reality of the incarnation. Christmas is not about warm, fuzzy feelings. It's about our Savior. It's about Jesus needing to come because of your sin and mine. And I, wanna, I want us to land here. Paul David Tripp writes this, God knew that our condition was so desperately grave that he was willing to go to this extent to reach and rescue us. Ponder the fact that God was willing to control the events of world history to bring this world to the place where conditions were right for Jesus to come simply because we had no power whatsoever to help ourselves out of our desperate state. Humanity was so incredibly messed up that there was only one solution for us, God himself. And, and if you're unaffected by that, it might be that you have not honestly reckoned with your sin. You've not asked God, reveal to me, help me to see, help me to be grieved by what grieves your heart. Help me to feel the weight of my motives, my attitudes, my responses my self-serving ambitions, my tendency to run over people in the process of trying to get what I want, my frustration, my anger, my trading in your beauty for trinkets and quick satisfaction and thrills that are gone before they've even started. You ever think about that about yourself? and then melt at the mercy of God. 
the one who is the maker of everything and sustains us every moment and gives us permission to be entering our world and coming so close. And the word who is life draining himself of life to rescue us from death that we might live with him for all eternity. And if, if, if we are not interested in, in that, <laughs> we're the problem. And, and let's close by asking God to help us because there's just, I, I feel this even when I, I preach about these things. We make ourselves available to them for a little bit of time and then we move on to some other relationship or entertainment or thing, event, possibility that gets our hope. It doesn't have to be like that this Christmas season. I want to pray that God deepens this work in our hearts. Oh, Lord. Thank you that you are the God who draws near. And you continue by your spirit to come near to us. Jesus, we acknowledge your presence. We acknowledge that you are in the room. Lord, we confess that you are the person who matters most. You are deserving. You and you alone of our trust, of our hope, of our pursuit, of our longing, of our amazement and thrill and wonder, of us concluding, great is the mystery of godliness, that you have become one of us. Lord, mature our taste buds or develop our ability to recognize value and beauty and glory for what it really is. Lord, the word became flesh and we've seen his glory, but the sad reality is too frequently. Glory is not our experience. That's not what we come away with having beheld. Would you change that? Would you change that tonight? Change that for us. Or this December, would we capitalize on the time that's available to us to open up our Bible and to say, show me, God. Thank you that you have revealed yourself. Help me to see who you are. Help me to be amazed. Would that mark our coming year as well? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.